So Heartland was up here during the fire and they were praying that God would somehow save this place because it was not looking good. As you leave today, as you have, if you head down the hill, up, you kind of go up a ways past the entrance and then go down. When you get down towards the valley, you can look back to your left and see there's roads carved in over there. That was all forest over there. But if you walk up this ridge here, you get to the top, down the other side, there's a medium-sized valley, and Dry Creek runs down that valley, and right up the other side is a hill called Hogback. And you can drive up, hop, drive up Hogback from the Badger uh, School up to Pinehurst and go up to 180, down 245. There's different ways to go. So while Hardeman was over here praying the fire would miss and the fire moved across the top of the hill here and then went down, <clears throat> it started heading right towards my mom's house who lives on Hogback. While we were praying, the fire would stay over in Harlan. <laughs> so I guess we got out prayed, didn't we? <laughs> we were at a trailer. We loaded up all her valuable stuff. And I, I was out of the state. And my two of my boys are up here, my son-in-law, my brother, and my brother-in-law. And they're loading all this stuff up. And they pack a couple of trailers, three pickups, I think, head down the hill. And I call them, you know, how's it going? Yeah, we're heading down the hill. I go, who's grandma riding with? Oh, grandma stayed in the house. <laughs> It's like, wait a minute, what? She said she's not coming until they come make her leave. I thought, God, 91 years old, and I tell you what, she's, she's still over there. I went and saw her yesterday. It turns 93 in May, and she is so ready to go see Jesus. Still has her wits and her health and can move around, and, but just, you know, the tank's getting empty, you know. She's shrunk five inches, you know, in the last 10 years or so, and, but, oh, my gosh, she is... I walked in and she was sleeping and I in her chair in a, in a rocker and uh, she woke up and said hi and we we're talking. She goes, yeah, I thought yesterday I wasn't going to get up today. And she goes, but I thought, no, I got to get up tomorrow because I need to write some notes to people. I want to write some notes to people before I'm gone. So I said, well, Mama, after I leave Heartland tomorrow, I'll come by and see if you're gone. <laughs> I'll deliver your notes for you if you are gone. So, but it's funny because, I mean, our family's not morbid or anything but my brother and sister and i have talked and uh we're we're ready for her to be with jesus we asked i said do either one of you guys want her put in some home somewhere to to live longer for you you know if you want that we gotta talk about it and we're all going no this isn't about us you know this is about her so we're uh Maybe a little different perspective than some people think. But I want to challenge your perspective of God a little bit this morning. I actually wrote in my notes here, who is God? And in Exodus chapter 3, God goes to Moses and tells Moses he wants him to go to where? Back to Egypt, right? He wants him to go lead the Hebrew people out of Egypt. And when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. And then so there's a discussion. It says, now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God. 
Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, I'll be with you. Then Moses protested again. He says, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? So Moses says, well, whoa, 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 hey, who, who am I to do this? And then God says, tell them I sent you. And then he says, whoa, 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 wait, wait, who are you? And God says, I am who I am. And then a little discussion goes on. So it says <clears throat> that um, Moses gets to a point again and God says, but, or Moses says, but if they don't believe me or listen to me, what, what, what do I do? And so the Lord's probably kind of going, okay, wait a minute, you know. I was in a bush talking to you. Did, did you understand where this started? And then you said, well, why are you talking to me? And I said, well, i am kind of got you ready to go. You said, well, who are you to send me? I, I am who I am. And then Moses says, well, what if they don't believe me? And God says, what is that in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord told him. So Moses threw down the staff and it turned into a snake. Moses jumped back. That's a real clear visual for me. Have you seen those videos when they take a snake with a clip and about 20, 15 feet of fishing line and they clip it to someone's shirt and then they'll stand back. I watched one of a guy on a tee box and they clip this and this guy's getting ready to tee off. He's all lined up and this guy sneaks up and clips this right on his shirt. Then it's a rubber snake about this long. And so all of a sudden somebody goes, is that a snake on the tee box? The guy looks around and he goes, oh, well, when he jumps, that snake goes whoo, right at him. That guy, those guys were on the, that guy ran around that tee box screaming, swinging his club, trying to get away three times around the whole outside of the tee box. So Moses jumped back. I was gone last week, uh, the week before when I went, excuse me, the week before I went to Tennessee, uh, we have a wood-burning stove, and I left firewood in it, and about in the in the wood rack, and about three row, you know, three stacked pieces down, I left a rubber snake for my wife. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to tell you who she is, <laughs> but it was a come to Jesus moment <laughs> when I got home. Then they told him the, the Lord told him to reach out and grab the tail. So Moses reached out and grabbed its tail and it turned back into a staff. Then God said, now put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand in his cloak when he took it out. It was white with leprosy. He said, now put it back in your cloak. So he put it back in his cloak and when he pulled it out, it was healthy. Would you have the hint by now God was calling you? We think we would. But I see lots of things today that we aren't even close to being called after that much stuff. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord. Oh, Lord, I am not very good with words. I st st stutter. I never have been. And I'm not now. Even though if you've spoken to me, 
I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. And here's a new or different view of God for you. Then God asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or not hear, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Wait a minute. I have a blind child, and God says, that's me. Is it not I, the Lord? I have a traumatic accident, and I'm left crippled in a bad state. God says, that's me. And then what does God tell me to do in that state? I'm to give what in all circumstances? What am I to give? I'm supposed to thank God for crippling me. It's a little out of our modern box. Feel good, smells good, tastes good. It's kind of soft, it's touchy. God says, no. <laughs> Who makes the blind blind? Who makes the deaf deaf? Who makes the dumb dumb? Is it not I, the Lord? Is he kidding? When Satan hammered Job, did he do that without God's permission? If someone was going to beat you like a rented mule and your dad told him to go ahead and he stood back and watched it, would you think he had any culpability in you getting the stew beat out of you? Absolutely. Your dad would have to take responsibility for that. Who makes the blind blind, the deaf deaf, the dumb dumb? Is it not I, the Lord, Moses? You think you stutter because of an accident that happened to you? Does God ever go, does he ever do that? No, he's never caught off guard. Brian Sternberg was an amazing athlete. Back in the late 60s, early 70s, he was the first human in the world to pole vault over 16 feet, and he did it with a non-flexible pole. He was 19 years old. He was six foot one. He was 190 pounds, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Greek god. He could physically, he was unbelievable. He was one of the few people known in the 20th century that had bilateral symmetry. That means that if you put a, a line down the middle of yourself, this side is exactly like this side. Ronald Reagan had bilateral symmetry. There was only about four or five that were discovered during the 19th, 20th century for that. Not a lot, you know, all of you can stop and think, is one foot a little bit different than the other? Maybe one hand's not quite, you stand up straight and one shoulder droops a little more. Your ears, no, that's, that's not. Bilateral symmetry is you're perfect. You can put a mirror down your center and you look the same when you see yourself in the mirror. Brian Sturberg had bilateral symmetry. His freshman year in college at the University of Washington in Seattle, he decides to go out for gymnastics and jump on the trampoline. In competition, he completes the first perfect 
triple backflip and competition anywhere in the world. Nails it. One, two, three, boom, sticks it. So he's in the gym one day and he's practicing, but now, but now Brian Sternberg, he had everything together. He controlled his world. Think he had women chasing him? Think he had business opportunities for endorsements to join companies? I mean, that, that guy was in a prime spot. He goes in to practice on the trampoline and the custodian's there and he said, hey, do you have a spotter? Brian Sturberg says, no, I don't need a spotter. He said, you know, I'm just gonna practice a little bit here. So the custodian kind of goes back out of sight of the trampoline in the gym and Brian Sternberg's practicing and he throws his triple backflip and he only missed it by that much. His neck slams into the side of the trampoline, into the metal railing and he goes off the edge, falls onto the floor and he has broken his neck about his C4 and he's paralyzed. Custodian hears the weird Kunk, pump, pump, or something, kind of goes in there. Miraculously, they get him in an ambulance to get there. They save his life. He probably should have died there. He's paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of his life. He's in an iron lung. Lives in Seattle, Washington, not too far from, lived in Seattle, Washington, not too far from Seattle Pacific. I went to Seattle for two quarters of college. And I went up to go up and row on a crew team, you know, the long boats with eight people in them. And we had a, a great team up there, but it rained in Seattle. <laughs> I was there two quarters and I said, whoa, this is not right. So I came back and went to Cal Poly and wrestled over there. And uh, there was sunshine over there. <laughs> but when I was there, I got to go meet Brian. One of the guys, I was in the uh, number six seat. He was in the number five seat. And uh, I rode four and six, and uh, three, four, five, and six are considered the powerhouse. Those are the bigger, stronger guys. The front and back are pacers and, and strokers. And so <clears throat> the guy that sat in front of me was his kind of day nurse part of the time. So he told me about this guy. So I came up there to see him or get a book or do something one time. And Brian was in an iron lung. Anybody remember those things? You laid, you laid inside of it and it came up to your neck up here and then pressure went on the inside you like a chamber and it pushed your chest down and then the pressure came off and you went and you breathed. Now they, they do what? Yeah. They put a trach in and you, they breathe that way for you. But he was in an iron lung. Well, about, well, while he was in the hospital before I met him, He's there and this girl that he knew at school came in to visit him and she was a Christian. And she came in and she would read to him and talk to him when he was in the hospital and he's laying there and he is so angry and so bent out of shape and so wanting to die. He couldn't even use his own hand to turn off his oxygen. He just was, he was at wit's end. And she came every day and just talked to him, was nice and stuff. And then one day she said, Brian, so, you know, it's, it's, it's break and I'll be gone for a couple of weeks, you know. And I just wanted to ask you a question. He said, do you, do, have you ever thought about God? And his answer was, God, how could you expect me to believe in a God that would cheat the world out of somebody as great as me? That's what he told her. So she told him goodbye. She got up and left, went home for a couple of weeks. 
He was in there by himself. Some of the times when she's reading, she'd been reading the Bible to him. She came back after a couple of weeks and she went into his wing of the ward, a very depressing wing, went to his room, which was always a very depressing room, and something was different. She walked in and he was aglow. While she was gone, he had prayed to receive Jesus into his heart. And she could feel the difference in the room. Four or five years later, Fort Collins, Colorado, Fellowship of Christian Athletes is having their national conference there. And there's just Olympians there, national champions in all kinds of sports. You know, there's professional athletes there. There's just the cream of the cream for our country. 2,000 people are there. And there's just, it's a who's who of sports and Olympics and just everything like that. An L.A. Rams lineman comes walking out. They had a stage. They open the curtain on the stage, and there's a chair sitting there with a microphone in front of it, and they turn the spotlight on, and everything else was dark. An L.A. Rams lineman comes out from the audience's left on the stage. He's got his coat over his arm, but you can just see this big shadow with his coat hanging off his arm, and he comes walking out across, and then he gets out and gets into the light, and it's not a coat, it's Brian Sternberg. He weighs about 100 pounds, 98 pounds. He sets him down in the chair and he crosses his legs so he'll look a little human. He's got a brace on to hold him up. The lineman takes the microphone and puts it out in front of him and moves it to get to where he, you know, he can speak into it. Can't move. And Brian Sternberg looks at the cream of the crop of the world. And he says... <clears throat> I pray that what happened to me never happens to you. But if that's what it takes for you to come to know my Jesus, I pray it happens to you. To Brian, it was worth it. The greatest gift God ever gave him was paralysis. Is that your God? Can you thank God for everything? I literally was thinking yesterday, we were out here, Larry's down, <clears throat> and I was, I was thanking God for the situation, what was going on. He was in control, that Larry knew him. I was so thankful, and I was out there, actually, I kind of pulled aside by myself, and I was just praying, thanking God for this circumstance. Could you look at that yesterday and thank God? Was he in control in your mind? I mean, my desire was for him to stand up and walk back up with us. But the best thing that could have ever happened to him was to walk into the presence of Jesus. I leave that up to God. I said yesterday, none of us die early, none of us die late. We die right on time. For his family, I am so excited for him. Got a little bit of a twinge of, he might have saw the light, and you know, he's, he's not breathing, heart's not beating, and some of you guys pulled him back out away from that, and he might have been going, whoa, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> That's God right there, that's Jesus. But I'm, it, it happened exactly what God designed yesterday, because he was testing all of us around that, wasn't he? 
Who makes the blind blind, the deaf deaf, the dumb dumb? And when those things happen, we tend to ask God, why? God, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen now? And God tells us, I'm sure he chuckles again. And Jesus actually tells us in the book of John, chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. Jesus says, oh, you're missing it so much. You still don't get it. Jesus calms the sea with the disciples in the boat. And they go, who is this guy? They've been walking with him this time. And they still don't get it. And Jesus tells us, you still don't get it sometimes. He's walking with the disciples and they go, Rabbi, this blind guy here, why was he born blind? Because his parents sinned? Because he sinned? And I think Jesus kind of chuckled and said, <laughs> uh, you guys still don't get it, do you? The question isn't why he was born blind. The question is, what is God going to do? He was born blind that my father would be glorified in this moment. And he was healed. That guy was blind his whole stinking life in a Hebrew culture in the Middle East to where he had nothing in an asset. It's amazing he was still alive and hadn't starved to death by that time. And God had a reason. Who makes the blind blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God didn't take an accident and fix it. God took an opportunity and did it. That's a little out of our comfort American Western culture. That's a, that's a dry pill. That's not a soft capsule. Can't, can't quite swallow it. You need more water. Slosh it around. Get it down. Ralph was a guy that I met. He runs a camp for disadvantaged children in Arizona. Uh, I know when he started, it was called Rainbow Acres. Ralph was moving a home on the wheels going down the road. He had a pole, and when they'd come to power lines that were just at the roof, he'd walk down the side of the roof, then lift the power line, and he'd walk along the roof to get the power line past the other end. So Ralph's doing this, and they came to a power line. Ralph moves it. Then they come to a phone line. Well, the phone lines aren't going to hurt you. Ralph goes and picks up the phone line, but they had to back up on a corner. And he forgot about something. So he's holding the phone line, starts to back up on the peak of the roof. He's walking back, and he walks right into a power line in the middle of his back. Lights him up. The transformer kicks off. Up here, if you live in the mountains, power goes off. You wait a few seconds, what happens? Boom, comes back on. Goes off again, comes back on. If it goes off a third time, you're done. So Ralph's getting it the second time. Power goes off, comes back on. His hands start on fire. They literally start just coming apart. When it switches off the second time, a guy up there with him knocks him off the wire, knocks him down, he rolls off the roof. Ralph came to Emmanuel High School in Reedley, did a chapel for us, amazing testimony, but he stood in front of us, in front of 300 kids, and he said, these are the greatest gifts God has ever given me. If you could 
take me into surgery and sew my hands back on. They functioned perfect. I would never let you touch me. Wow. See, those kinds of things make us bitter or they make us better. The only difference is the letter I. You'll become bitter through life or you'll become better. Who makes the blind blind? Who makes the deaf deaf? And we are to give thanks in how many things? All things. My son got accused of cheating at Cal Poly. Let me give you an example of how we put the stuff, how, how we become committed, you know, how we seek to abide with Jesus. How does that flesh itself out? David, my oldest son, was going to Cal Poly, had just made a recent decision. He wanted, he felt he went on a mission trip down to Costa Rica and he felt called to medical missions. Well, when he was in biology and the teacher got the little lance out to remember, poke your finger and test your blood. Darren got up there and he took the lance and he was showing him, he poked his finger and he looked out and my son was unconscious on his desk. He passed out watching Darren poke his finger. And you want to be a doctor. <laughs> So he's at Cal Poly, he's in an organic chemistry class. He usually sits down front. He's involved in Campus Crusade, does some leader stuff, stuff with him. He's a great kid. And there's a girl in the class named Katie. And she kind of, you know, sits somewhere in class while they take an organic test. The next week, uh, Christine Bailey, uh, Dr. Phil Bailey is the dean of the School of Science Mathematics. His wife, Christine, is an organic teacher there. And I became really good friends with the family. When I was going to school there, so Christine hands out all the papers and she says, uh, David and uh, Katie, I need to see you guys after class. So David's kind of going, oh my gosh, did I blow the test that bad? You know, what was you, I mean, that's kind of that thing waiting, you know, and you're just like, oh, I did terrible, I'm on the flunk, I'm not going to be able to get out of this class, I'll never get into med school, his whole mind's just going crazy. They both go down and Christine said, your guys' papers are exactly alike. And there was a freeform reaction at the end that you had to, write out all the reactants and put all the products down. Easy place to, you know, make variables and stuff in, which way you put them and all this, if you make a mistake. Well, those two were the same. I think it was Monday or Tuesday when they got their test back, and she said, you guys need to spend some time with yourself, but we have a zero tolerance at Cal Poly. If you get caught cheating in a class, you're out of school. So... You have till Friday to come talk to me. So they leave. Well, David calls me. I'm teaching Cal, uh, Golden West in Visalia. David gives me a call. The teacher, come, my department head comes and gets me. I go into find What's going on, David? He said, uh, he goes, Dad, Dr. Bailey just called me in and said I was cheating on a test. I was not cheating. And I, I believe him. He, he, <laughs> I'd put a gun to his head to make him cheat. He wouldn't cheat if I tried. But he just, he said he wasn't cheating. He just, it was a girl I know from Crusade. You know, I'm what to do. And immediately, my attitude, let me go to Cal Poly. I'll just kill them all and let God sort them out. <laughs> just let God take care of this. I'll just kill all of them right here. I go, David, I go, I can get someone to cover my last two classes. I'm going to jump in the car, run over. I go to Phil's office. I'll talk to him, you know, straighten this out and stuff. And he's going, no, 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 Dad, I want to work this out, you know. And I'm going, but yeah, but I mean... You don't want to just sit back and not do anything, you know, sit down and write down everything that happened, where you were sitting, you know, why you think Katie would be accused of that, too. And so he's like, no, Dad, he says, you know, 
he, he was pushing against me on it. And I was getting more, God, I want to get in my truck and drive over there and go in and take care of this thing, protect my kid. You ever have a situation where your student becomes smarter than you? David says to me on the phone, he goes, Dad, Dad. He goes, think how awesome it would be if I was a doctor as a missionary. Think how much greater it will be to see what God would do if I lose that. The student went way by the parent. He was excited for what God was going to do. He could have said, I don't know why. I don't know why would God do this. I just last summer committed to going to missions. I don't know why this would happen. Well, I mean, I don't cheat. Why would, you know, I mean, he could have really gone into it. And he tells me, think how exciting it would be for what God's going to do if I do lose medicine. Wow. What's God doing in your life that you're saying why about? What's something that you're looking at and thinking, God, why didn't I get that raise? Why is my wife not as physically romantic as everybody else's? Why do I have to do this? And those little roots of bitterness in Hebrews, it's like you, you dig a little hole and just stick the little bottom part of it in there. And the more you ask why, you're fertilizing those roots of bitterness. Stepping back and saying, God, thank you for this circumstance. I do not understand it. I know you make the blind blind. I know you make the deaf deaf and the dumb dumb. But God, what are you going to do? Please show me what's going to happen. Two years ago this month, April, my wife and I and one of my buddies from college, wrestler, one of our great guys at Cal Poly, four-time four All-American, second in the nation twice, Second, first in the world's great guy, Alan Cook from Tulare. We take our, he has a pole trailer. We have a little fifth wheel and we head to Tennessee to go see another one of our roommates that wrestled. One 18 pounder sucked, got killed all the time. So we go back to see, he's a surgeon now though, you know? So we go back there to see him and we go to Henderson, uh, Nevada. Is that by Las Vegas? We went to Henderson first night. I get up, go in the bathroom. I've said all my life, I like pain. I hit my finger with a hammer. I'm like, oh, I feel so good. I'm going to do that again. You know, and my kids just freak out about it, you know. And there's been a few times that I'll cut myself with a pocket knife or razor, and I'll go, oh, my gosh, and I'll cut myself again just to freak them out, you know, just to put another slice in here, you know, just to freak my kids out. And so I'm in there, and I'm in the bathroom. I didn't realize what was happening, but I did come to realize that I passed a kidney stone. It was awesome. It was awesome. Someone had a ninja star about that big. They heated it up in a fire, tied a piece of wire to it, stuck it up inside me, then drug it back out real slow, you know, coming out. Well, guess what happened the next day? Oh, boy. This was going to be a great trip. Passed a couple more on the trip. So we get home. We're gone for three and a half weeks. We get home. My wife says, go see the doc. So I go see my family practice guy. And he sends me for x-rays. And I come back. And he said, man, he said, you've, you've got a big bladder stone in there. Two and a half inches long. 
So he said, uh, makes an appointment with uh, Dr. Leung, a urologist up at, I think, Central California Urology Center up there in Fresno, Sermon Herndon. So I go up and see him and he takes an x-ray and I have a CAT scan and they say, yeah, it looks like you've got a big bladder stone in there. It had grown about another quarter inch. So I went in, took months for me to finally get in and have surgery. That's where they take a video camera, they duct tape it to a garden hose and they stick it up inside of you. Oh man, that's fun. That's a great experience. <laughs> and the more they do it, they just use bigger cameras and bigger hoses, man. So they go in, cut it out. I, I guess they were planning on 45 minutes to an hour surgery. Three and a half hours later, I come out and my son, the doctor's there, my wife. I feel bad for my wife for this, but the doctor comes out and says, well, it wasn't a bladder stone. It was an aggressive cancer. So I've been through two series of chemo in the last year, two other surgeries. I had a good report about three months ago, looks clear. Then about two weeks ago, I went back in and said, whoops, <laughs> guess who's back? So I have a CAT scan this next week and I'm going back through the process. You know what? The very first day when I came out of anesthesia, David and Anne-Marie were there and they told me, I thank God for my cancer. I was thankful I had cancer. And I verbally said, oh, praise God. And they said, dad, you're nuts. <laughs> but I didn't know if I felt that. But what am I told to do? Give thanks in all things. And I consciously, I did this morning, I've consciously, every day I wake up, I thank God for my cancer. I thank God that he's, what's he going to do? I've seen some things, some amazing things already. But what he's going to do, I don't know. Will I be here next year? I really actually don't care. Because I know that I have zero control in this. I can do what I'm supposed to do, that stuff, but... Every one of my breasts are counted. Every hair on my head is numbered. I will not live a breath longer than I'm supposed to. I won't live a breath less than I'm supposed to. Oh, thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do in this area of my life. And if I don't make it out of this thing, like I said, I really don't get chemo's chemo. You know, I mean, I wouldn't volunteer to do it again tomorrow. But, you know, it's six weeks and then wait a while, another six weeks. And so, but I, I really am thankful for it. And I've seen a group of about 20 people, our home group that we meet with. And when I went back, they were praying for me, I went back. And the first time I was going back, Anna told them, you know, it was in the prayer thing. And I went back and I said, I'm going to let you guys know. I said, I'm really thankful that God's blessed me with cancer. And I wasn't trying to be holy or spiritual. I just really felt there's something in me that feels like, that's the best way to go with this. And over the last year, I've had well over half the people in there come up and say that helped them so much to look at, we're all old in there. It helped them so much to look at themselves and their infirmities, my diabetes. I meet people, if I, I would meet people if I have diabetes that I would never meet otherwise. 
I meet people with my cancer that I would never meet otherwise. I would never have a chance to be kind to them, to encourage them. If I have a chance to tell them God loves them, tell them thank you. I take bags of oranges to my doctor's office. I pick up tangerines, you know. I mean, I just, I try to do things because they're such good people. I want to bless them and help them. If I didn't have to deal with this, I would never have met these amazing people. Who makes the blind blind in your life? Who makes the deaf deaf? Who makes the dumb dumb? I can tell you it is the Lord. So your biggest problem you're struggling with right now, do you understand that that can become your biggest asset? The two or three things that you're just chewing on, why, 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 doesn't make sense. Those can become the biggest building blocks in your life. They can change your life like nothing else can. Is it not I, the Lord? God's good. How much? All the time. How many things work together for good? All of them. If you don't know if you'll be here next year or two years or 10 years or something like that, that is good. That is good. Because God is always good. Is it not I, the Lord? Let's pray. Father God, probably all of us have things in our life that right now we would love to have an answer why. Oh, man, God, if we just knew why this was happening. If I could see the end result, then I could be thankful. Then I could praise you. I could give a testimony of you to people around me. And, Lord, you're very patiently waiting for us to get rid of the eye and bitter, to take our eyes off ourselves, to look to you and say, thank you, Lord. Nobody can figure out what's wrong with my daughter. We've gone to several different places. God, thank you for the people we've met. Thank you for the kindness that she has received from people. God, thank you that we still have our home. We haven't lost our home or our, all of our possessions through this. Thank you that I live in a country that there is medicine available. Thank you that I'm not in Ethiopia where she would be set out by the street to die. Oh, God, you are so good all the time. I pray for each person here, Lord, each guy, that he would uh, work. It is work to be thankful. But it becomes a blessing. Lord, we can do that in our physical world so many times. Go to the gym and work out, work out, work out, work out. It's hard. It's work out, work out to get stronger and be strong. And you tell us you'd like us to do that spiritually. Father, thank you for uh, jerking the slack out of my rope when I start running. Thanks for setting me back where I belong. Thank you yesterday for just correcting my thought process. Something I've thought and believed for decades. And God, you just snapped me up in my 
shoes right there. Ah, oh, thanks, God. You love us all the time. Give each person here the strength to maybe not necessarily run and tell people about their thought process change, but to begin to live the change and have people ask them, what's different about you? You seem nicer to the kids. You're helping more around here. You're coming into work a little bit earlier than you used to. You used to, you kind of got in here. It's cool you come early and make coffee for everybody else. Lord, help us to live such a life that people will ask us what's different. Because then we get to talk to them and tell them it's you. It's Jesus. Thanks for this camp. For just a great time around the tables, a great time talking afterwards. Uh, oh, Lord, thank you so much for Josh. What a great transition from worship to looking at you. The best. Be with all of us heading home. Protect our families. Protect our hearts. Give us peace. Protect our minds. And Lord, help us to be quick this week of saying thank you, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.